Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode 136. My guest in this episode is Dr. Esther Chu. And I'm just delighted with this conversation. Esther is in rare air and we talk about how she got to this place and what it's like to be one of the most important physician influencers we have. We cover a ton of ground. She is remarkable and I learned a ton from her. I think you will as well. She's inspiring. She's motivating. She's funny. This is just a great episode. Before we get to the conversation, please check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can find me on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on all of them. Please make sure you subscribe because we've got lots more good content coming and you want to make sure you have this episode bookmarked as well because it's really good. If you have the chance to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite platform, that is also appreciated. It's a great way to help other people find the show and it really helps us out as well. This conversation is special. I'm really happy with it. It was a just a total privilege to have Esther on the podcast. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Esther Chu. Esther, welcome to Explore the Space. This is really exciting for me. Thank you for coming on. It's exciting for me too. It's been nice listening to it over time and now I get to be on. You were one of the first personalities, I won't say people that I met on social media when I kind of really jumped into Twitter and especially our little hashtag med Twitter world about a year ago. And so it's really cool to actually connect with this person who I have observed doing these incredible things, frankly, all around the world. So this is pretty exciting for me. Thank you so much. And it's cool to talk to you too. I mean, I remember, I mean, my Twitter feed is like a fire hose, um, but I remember you jumped in really enthusiastically and I think just started participating on a pretty high level early on. So um, I think that's how we met and followed each other and, and started having conversations. I agree with you. And I like high level. So let's start at a high level because you are the high level right now. I would I would <laughs> submit to you that you are really up there with just a couple of other people in pretty rare air as far as influencers, as far as narrative drivers, creators, impact people. That's my perception and I'm going to stand by it, but I will (laughs) submit that to you. And what do you think when you hear something like that? Well, I don't really relate to that. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) this is the funny thing about social media. I mean, I think in the pre-social media era, I would be an academic in her cave, um, you know, writing commentary on things in my brain and having all of eight or nine people read it. Um, I happen to have access to this medium called Twitter. And so some of those random thoughts find themselves out to a larger audience. And the fact that they, uh, you know, that they are absorbed by the number of people that they are is still kind of astonishing to me. And I actually think mentally, um, I don't think here I am tweeting something to, you know, many thousands of people. I still think like, 
um, here I am tweeting something to a couple of friends. I think that's really the only way you can stay in a mental space where you can stay authentic to yourself and not be too performative. Um, and so it still is kind of strange to me <laughs> that I have a public presence at all, but, um, i I definitely am, am learning that slowly, but it, it lags the the um, the online presence. I would say you hit on something that for me I find incredibly interesting. We've talked on the show a lot with a number of people whom I know you you know probably many of them in real life, but certainly mm -hmm. on our in our social media milieu, it's around this idea of getting our best people and our best ideas forward. I think for a long time, like you said, right. We had brilliant people doing incredible work, but they were in this cave. They were in this inward-facing thing where we would submit this stuff to journals, and it would sit and stew and get cogitated over, and it might get rejected, and then it gets mm. published, and then it would disappear into what I like to call PubMed hell, and you would write something, and I would never see it. And I mean, I think the fact that, right. right, it was only until a year ago that I'd even heard of you, like, that's not, that's not good. That's not good for my right. professional development. It's not, good <laughs> for, it's, it's right. We want to get that different for you though. You've been doing really high quality work for a long time. Was there a moment where you felt like the universe really expanded and that you could take, you could get out of that cave? I really was the first viral tweet I did, which was around the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where I put out a story about racism in the emergency department and that um, and that got propagated through Twitter. And um, and I think it was around that time that my um, that my account really took off. I mean, I know that it was around that time that my account really took off. And I mean, I think overnight, pretty much my following went from uh, less than 5,000 to about 20,000. Uh, and then it really hasn't stopped since then. And, um, and I realized, I mean, I am, I am really just an a, a academic doing research and, um, you can be uh, as self-effacing as you want, but you're not that. <laughs> no. You, you and I both know that you're not just an academic doing <laughs> research. Well, I guess what I mean is, um, you know, up until that point, I had – so just before that point, I had finished a fairly large grant, okay. an NIH grant. And, um, and my core project from that um, was this – I guess the, the work of basically five years culminated in a paper that I was very proud of that I basically put everything into. And um, it was a small RCT, and it got published um, as soon as I submitted it. I was extremely happy with it. And it was read over the course of, I think, more than six months. It was read 18 times, you know. And um, and then around the time my social media account sort of took off, I was writing a lot for the popular press as well. And some of those things would get read 30,000 times, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I started questioning my entire existence. <laughs> 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 I mean, just the, the cognitive disconnect. and. Yeah. The thing that's read 30,000 times that you spent, what, four or five hours on, it's not that I don't believe in that writing, too. And, and sometimes you're really writing from a deep well of experience and thought and reading. And so it's okay, and that has a place, and you're speaking to the public. There's lots of reasons why I don't feel bad about that. But I, I felt very sad for my my thing of beauty, you know, sure. um, that I spent so much time fussing over. It was like my precious. And... Um, <laughs> This, this whole just, cave motif is really resonating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. I am Gollum in a cave. And, and it just, the, the cognitive dissonance yeah. around those 
just, it really made me question a lot of things like, what am I even doing? And, you know, of course there is a medium and I think actually straddling academia and, and social media is, um, is a really wonderful place to be because yeah. you can have some of both. Um, but I, I have to say, I cycled, I really agonized around <laughs> some that kind of phenomenon, just like the total disconnect between, you know, effort and visibility. So that's a really interesting tension point of effort versus visibility. Are they mutually exclusive? Because as you're doing this work, right, you're, you're putting things out on social media you give a talk that goes on YouTube, you do these things that are more forward-facing. They are for a more public audience, right? This podcast is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. The impact when you do that, that's a really big boulder to throw into a waiting pool versus this randomized controlled trial that you spend time on and you follow scientific method and you do all the things that you, I mean, you're highly trained, you're really good at it, and then you get to deploy all those skills, but the impact is not the same. That's a tension, right? That, that's, that's tension. And, and there's another tension here that is really a learning process for me. I mean, when I do this podcast and when I speak and it's live streamed or I write something that's read by a broad audience, somewhere in there, I say something that I wish I could I could do over. Uh, um, you know, I have no control over this. I mean, when I turned in that RCT, every word was what I wanted it to yes, be. Yes, And I felt so confident that it could go out and none of those 18 people could find criticism with it, you know? And then you do these things, I'll write something so quickly, there's something in there that is, you know, it's not um, as rigorously as I would have written it, but that's, that's what social media and what popular press is. You have to kind of churn out without, um, without putting everything through the process that you would for an academic piece and yeah. um, learning to live with that lack of control and also with the, the criticism that rightly comes from it. You know, so people will say you, you use this word or you cited this thing and, um, and you know, within minutes, uh, you know, there's this, this kind of, review on social media that is really harsh and oftentimes deserved. I mean, so much so that it's, it's this intense learning process, but it's also, um, you know, when you have intense learning processes, often it's, it, there's some pain involved. And so, uh, I find that it's very painful to be kind of out there. People do not hold back, particularly when they don't know you. It's a very good thing because that is, uh, that's an opportunity to learn where you're criticized. And, and I feel like I've learned so much that when I look back a year ago to something that I have written or said, I often find it really, really cringy um, because, uh, you know, the, the, the big machine of social media has taken me through this process of, of growth. Um, it's, it's really great for a 40 something year old person whose brain is starting to freeze over to be forced <laughs> through um, kind of, you know, just a level of, of thinking and self critique and, um, and reading and consideration that, that you might not do, um, Otherwise, you know, if you were kind of dragged through it, I think people become kind of complacent in their thinking just as, you know, as part of human nature. Your, uh, and your social media feed and the talks that you give that are live streamed and that are on YouTube do not allow for any sort of complacency. And they do not suggest <laughs> that you in any way are becoming complacent. But I do want to pick up on something that you said, and right, and that's that immediate feedback slash criticism your Twitter feed is excellent. It is provocative. I, I love it. I don't agree with everything that you put on it, but that is totally okay. If you and I were to have a meal together, we're not going to agree on every last statement that the other one makes, and that's normal. Exactly. But exactly. boy, if you and I were having a meal together and we disagreed, we would resolve it one way. 
Right. I will agree with you on Twitter. Some of the things you've put up, man, people have let you have it. <laughs> uh, that that's right. gotta be that's gotta be a unique challenge to step through. Yeah, and I think it is, but it's it's part of the territory. I mean, yeah. I think when people launch their Twitter accounts and or other social media accounts, and they settle into what their personality on that account is going to be, you you make some sacrifices. I mean, either you're going to play it really safe, um, and it's not going to be that interesting to you or anybody else, or, or you're going to use it as kind of a testing ground for different ideas or takes on things. Yeah. And so for me, I think I probably would have quit Twitter a long time ago if it weren't fun. And, um, and you know, in medicine, I think we constantly go through these cycles of being terrified, then excited, then comfortable, then bored, you know? And I mean, one of the reasons I'm in emergency medicine is that fourth step, the boredom. <laughs> I was going to say this dread. all makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's all like my life is very consistent. I'm in emergency medicine, just kind of my personality on Twitter. But I, I feel like if you're not going to the edge um, of what feels comfortable and, and what you I love that you say that you don't agree with everything. And that, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, I follow your Twitter account and I have to say, sometimes you make me feel uncomfortable and I'm like, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I don't ever want to be dogmatic with bad ideas. Um, but if I put an idea out there that's uncomfortable, that even I feel a little uncomfortable with, then I feel like it's serving its purpose in my life. Um, and, and again, it's a good counter to the kind of plotting methodical, um, low innovation, sometimes life that academia can be where you, for the most part, play it safe. That's a really important point. Like, let's think about any relationship that we have, right? My best friend and I don't agree on everything, (laughs) right? right? We're not supposed, we're we're not supposed to agree on everything, but it's finding that, finding that sweet spot. And I think that you're there. Like I haven't unfollowed you on Twitter. I want more. (laughs) I want more of it. I want your talks to all be live streamed. Like I want the subscription pack on my smart TV so that like they <laughs> auto download, which hopefully we'll get there one day. But my point is, is that what you're saying around that comfort level, that, that actually lands with me because I've been really active on social media for coming up on a year and I like it. I haven't figured out how to do that sort of more provocative stuff. Like my, the things that my controversial takes, like they're, they're, they're still in my holster. Um, <laughs> right. And, and that, that there's a learning process in there. Where you want to like. stay, you know? Um, or, I don't you think know. it is though. I don't think it is. Yeah. I, I, I want to be a gunslinger on social media <laughs> right there with you because partly because I have things that I want to say, but partly I want yeah. people to know that they're not alone and that there's yeah. other, there's other people that will step into the fight because some of these things are arguments. Um, it, it's tough though. I won't, I won't say yeah. it's easy. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, the the key too is, I mean, it's what you said about having your best friend who, who you know, who you don't agree with all the time. I, I think it is important to have people who are going to be critical of you, but you know, they're in your camp. And I would consider you to be one of those people. It's like, you need to keep people, enough people around that you're not just preaching to the choir, you know, and then you mute or block everybody else. I think, um, I think being thoughtful about who you follow um, and um, and who you who you want to be following you, so that when you put out something that 
that really is off. You know, there are enough people who can message you or yeah. tweet at you and be like, I-, I like that you're provocative, but but that one's just bad. You know, <laughs> that <laughs> one a, is not just, a hot take. That's a bad. Yeah. Take. Yeah. Just a bad take. I yeah. know, you know, yeah. I know you're testing the waters with different ideas. Um, but, you know, you know, I think that that is kind of what makes it, it not safe, but um but makes me feel like there's reasonable checks and balances in what I put out. So I'm not hurtful. That's the thing. You always want to be respectful and not hurtful and also make sure you're supporting those who do not have the kind of voice or platform that I have. And so um, I try to triangulate around those principles. And, um, and there's many times when I get it wrong because I'm human and I have to backtrack or, you know, um, or sort of rewire and, and that's good too. At the beginning, I talked about how, from my perspective, you're one of the you're one of the influencers. You're one of a smaller cadre of people who, not just on Twitter, not just on social media, but in real life, are impacting narrative, doing the right work, changing the way we look at things. And you, over the course of your career, I know that this is the work that you specialize in and trained in and did your MPH in around issues of gender equity, gender bias gender inequity, particularly in our profession, which is healthcare, that's a big one and it's important. But when you're talking about that, you're challenging assumptions, you're challenging, quote, the way we've always done it, unquote, and you're putting it right out in, you know, under a big bright light. When you started on that work and you took it from out of the cave into social media, onto the stage, onto YouTube, onto all of these different platforms, was there anxiety? Was there a- anguish? Was there fear? Or was this, hey, this is wrong, and I'm going right at this as hard as I can? Well, I will answer that, but I'm going to correct one thing, which is I actually have not developed myself um, in a traditional way on topics of gender bias and equity and harassment. So my training is as a health services researcher, and I'm a, a drug use and drug policy researcher. Um, so everything that I'm visible on, almost on social media, is my volunteer work um, and my hobby. So um, wow. and it. It, I did not know that. I, I misunderstood when I was doing my research. So thank you for correcting me. Yeah. No, you would never guess, actually, because my, my visible presence is very different from my actual academic work. And there are reasons that it's played out that way. And I try to keep my life separate. But uh, for people who are not on social media, uh, they, I think, probably associate more with some of my other academic work. And um, and so when I made the the leap to sort of talking about some of these issues much more publicly. And, and don't get me wrong. There was definitely like um, the same pattern of um, kind of recognition. You know, I did this work quietly within my specialty for a long time, just, you know, being interested in the careers of women and the barriers and challenges that they face and why was this happening? And in the meantime, I was doing this other type of research that was mostly focused on um, on substance use and violence, but I had a particular interest in the health disparities of women. And so the topics converged ultimately, but it took a while. I'm trying to make them converge more so that I don't have to have um, two parallel lives. But, um, but I would say making the leap to talking about some of the issues that I'd quietly be concerned about um, in a more open forum was was not hard um, psychologically or emotionally. I would say it was it was a relief. You know, it was like wow, that's it was like um, the, these topics are just so frustrating. I mean, these are the topics that 
academic women get together in rooms and we start venting and like an hour later you're still venting or, or you you feel isolated about it then you go to a national meeting and you realize that so many other women at your stage are experiencing the same things and so there there's just a, a really um big function of networking for women for that reason because you can find out that you have these common experiences and so i would say uh primarily it, it served a very healthy function for me and that I, I got to just sort of, you know, spit out all these things that are kind of barreled up inside for a long time, observations, frustrations, themes, you know, and then you can see as, um, uh, I mean, there, it's not just me, there's many, many, uh, women academics on Twitter, um, talking about these things, but we all, you know, we all kind of chime in and express a lot of support from each other when these topics come up because they're, they really are such common experiences. We just didn't realize it until we had this community. The, the act uh, from, from, from the way I've perceived it though, is you all and you specifically are far more sophisticated than what you just described, which was the getting together and venting, which I'm sure like we've all been in that situation, but I can only imagine mm -hmm. what it's been like for you and your colleagues in this profession. You're way more sophisticated now. And you now have an organization as well that is it's it's the flag that that we all march under. It's 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 on your scrubs. It's this, it's this entity that's been created. Times Up Healthcare, which, gosh, I mean, have we ever had something like that before in our profession? I don't know. It definitely feels different. And, and I won't say that it's, um, I don't want to overblow its importance in that. Uh, I think what's special about medicine is that women have been organizing yeah. forever, you know, no, I respect the American, that. there's probably things that have happened in the past, but at yeah. least in the 21st century with all of the tools for the communication tools that we now have at our disposal, this feels unique in that context. I, I, yeah, I will agree with that. I mean, I think it, it again, um, in the age of social media, just on the heels of the Me Too movement, and also having this deep history in healthcare where women have been organizing for so long, you know, like the, the American Medical Women's Association is one of the oldest medical groups in the country. Yeah. That's how long women have been um, seeing the value of getting together and uniting around a cause. And so I, I do think, um, I mean, I talk a lot about how, why are men always seen as agentic and women always seen as communal, but at the same time, um, uh, women women really find power in, in gathering. And, um, and I, I think having, having this common space to, um, to unify, to, uh, coordinate efforts, um, to find common ground and to develop strategy. Um, that's just been, um, it's been a wonderful thing about Times Up Healthcare. And of course we have the, the mother, the power of the mother organization behind us. And so everything we do has extra amplification because we're, we're part of this big cross industry effort. So yeah, Times Up Healthcare has been, I mean, we're only four months in, so it still right. is a, a brand new organization and we are just still getting our, you know, our walking legs. But, I love that uh, you steeped it in this history and I love that you steeped it in where we came from as a history major, right? That's, we, <laughs> build, we build off the lessons of the past. We learn from yeah. it, we integrate it. We figure out what we don't need, but frame for us, me included, right? Four months into this work, what is Time's Up Healthcare? And, and what is that mission? What is that what is that thing that's going to sustain you, that's going to push you? You've got a nice long career ahead of you. Mm -hmm. You're in your prime. 
what is that what is that 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 piece that's going to drive the work yeah i think for a lot of us it's thinking about the workplace that we entered when we started healthcare and then envisioning a very different place mm. for the next generation or at least the generation after and um, I mean, I, that's 100% true for healthcare, and I can mostly speak to healthcare, but I will say across Time's Up, um, the whole Time's Up organization and all the industries that it represents, uh, when we get together, everyone has similar stories. And they are really stories of curtailed opportunity and a lot of gender based harassment and other forms of discrimination um, experienced over the course of the career pretty consistently. Um, and, um, and then really just, sad stories for the industry. Like when I, when I hear stories of women who step out of the workforce, um, sometimes just step back or sometimes step out entirely, it makes me sad for what is lost in terms of their creativity and productivity and contributions to that field. And, um, and that lost opportunity, I mean, we will, I think one day correct these things and we'll never gain back what was lost by the culture that we already have. Wow. So that's kind yeah. of what drives Time's Up Healthcare. And it, it really, to me, I mean, I know Time's Up can sound like a really angry thing or this kind of, you know, this kind of uh, fighting thing. But but I will say most of the time when I work on this, I feel profound sadness for what, for what has been lost. And we want to regain that. And so um, what Time's Up Healthcare is doing is trying to address anything that stands in the way of a safe, fair, and dignified workplace for women in, across healthcare. So every single role in healthcare is our ultimate goal. Um, and, uh, and part of that is getting organizations to recognize the problem and commit to a better future. Um, part of it is building out resources. Part of it is thinking of all the pillars um, that hold up our current culture and um, addressing those pillars one by one, whether it's in the way that, you know, the places and the organizations responsible for education or accreditation or funding of healthcare um, and research and biomedical research, um, we're kind of addressing all of those pillars. So um, this happens in, you know, sometimes in leaps and sometimes in crawls. Some of our initiatives will probably stretch out over years. Some are really, um, shorter term things that will happen this summer. Um, but we're just, um, we're kind of looking at this very holistically and seeing where we are best uh, situated to try to inspire changes in culture and in employment practices. Is it an overstatement if I say that you are launching a movement? We are a little touchy about the word movement because okay. what we lay claim to is that we're an or a national organization. Gotcha. No, <laughs> I think a, that's just our comfort zone. But yeah. if people feel the movement part of it, and yes. you know, I think Times Up goes beyond our organization. You know, so I speak of four Times Up Healthcare, but um, I think there's a ripple effect where you'll see people use the term Times Up. Just in common parlance, you know, they'll be like, I'm really, uh, we, we should be done with this practice of fill in the blank, you know, of, um, of unequal starting salaries, because time is up for that kind of behavior. And they're not actually referencing us. They're referencing this some this thing, this concept, which is which is we're beyond frustrated with some of the things that happen in these workplaces. And so I think there is a movement. Um, I we don't lay claim to it. You know, I, I think the phrase times up has taken a life of its own. That's interesting. But you'll be able to hopefully 
capitalize, build on, and contribute to that momentum? It feels like, yes, it feels like there is momentum and uh, that this time feels different and more ripe for change yeah. than any I've seen in my lifetime or in recent history, and, and we're excited about it. One of the things that I have observed in that work, you, you have been a very forward-facing personality speaker advocate in doing this, and it, it hasn't been that long. And you've spoken all over the world. You've spoken in front of big audiences. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've spoken under the Aspen Institute banner. You've spoken right. under the Atlantic banner. These are big audiences. Mm-hmm. They're big, diverse audiences. And when you're speaking about gender bias, you're you're out of the echo chamber. You're not mm-hmm. speaking to that group of women who are meeting at a conference and venting. You're speaking to people who need to learn and people who want to maybe want to, or don't want to learn. What is that experience like? It's one thing to be on an echo chamber. It's one thing to be amongst colleagues who are going to say, yes, yes, yes. You're stepping out onto big stages and talking to people whose understanding and recognition and intent is unclear. What is that like? It has changed me, I have to say. I mean, when you are speaking to, uh, like you say, an audience of very like peers, you can speak from a presumption of of shared experience and similar knowledge and viewpoint. As I started stepping out to more mixed audiences in in every sense, you know, mixed in, in gender and in experience and in familiarity with this topic, I shifted my presentation of the topic for sure. And they're just little things um, that don't sound like a big deal, but allowed me to present it more comfortably to to an audience. Sometimes I wouldn't even know what the composition of that audience was, you know? So when, when I'm unsure, there are a few things I do. Um, one is to acknowledge that this topic can be very uncomfortable and divisive. Another is to not talk about it from the perspective of fairness. Um, I mean, fairness is a concept that resonates with women who are experiencing the thing, these things, but almost nobody else. Ultimately, I, I don't. I, I don't think um, let's be more fair is a great argument because people really believe themselves to be fair, and so it almost comes off. It comes off as insulting, and so I really focus on the clinical and the financial case for equity and for safety in the workplace. And that is almost all that I talk about. Um, And then I think the last thing is to, no matter, almost no matter what the topic, um, I think there are a few exceptions, but almost no matter what the uh, the topic, I think we can give ourselves room to find the humor in it. So I'm not a hugely funny person in my regular life, um, but when I give talks, I am funny. Um, There are jokes embedded there. There are funny points because it, it, in order to feel comfortable talking about something like this, that is, that is kind of has this weight of shame and fear and defensiveness, um, we have to make it more comfortable. And so I try to make the talk, believe it or not, as entertaining as possible. Um, and then also because of my background as chock full of data as possible. Um, I think there's a place for narrative for sure, but it's not in my talks. Your talks, the ones that I've been able to watch, are some of my favorites. And if you were to have asked me, why do I like, or if someone else said, Mark, why do you like Esther's talks? Why do you watch them? I would have said basically what you just described. I think your sense oh, of your speaking abilities is, is spot on. First of all, you go right at the topic. I, I don't feel like you compromise. I don't feel like you soft play 
anything. I feel like you go right at it, but you go right at it in the right way. It's data-driven. It's evidence-based. You build around stories, and we know that those are the best ways to to drive things home, that stories are really sticky. Yeah. And then that – you're funny. Oh, <laughs> you, thank you. No, there's some, like, proper laugh lines <laughs> in your Trying. Talks and, <laughs> no, that's hard. I mean, being funny in a talk, I'm, I'm still working on how to do that in real life. I get feedback at least like from my wife and my friends that, you know, I can, I can crack a joke or a one liner. It's hard to do that when you're on stage. And so that you're able to already do that now, I think is, is going to stand you in really good stead. And I think it's really good. One of the things though, that, that happens that you also do so well, and we're kind of getting into the, getting a little into kind of the sticky details about how to give a good talk. Thank you for not using a lot of slides. Oh, yes. I, I feel like I definitely am from the, the, what is it? The Zen, the presentation Zen and, um, and death by PowerPoint totally. schools of thought. Yeah. So thank you for noticing that I don't <laughs> like to use a lot of slides. It is, it is much appreciated. <laughs> I want to watch you. I want to watch your presence. You're also really dynamic on stage, which I like you move around. Aww, you're not, you're you. not trapped behind the podium. Um, and being able to get out there, right. There's a sense of community. There's a sense of we're gathered around the fire and we're telling stories when you're up on the stage, moving around, moving through the crowd, moving with your hands, those sorts of things I think are, are really impactful when someone is trapped behind the podium. It's just different. Um, and I think some people might like those types of talks. I like it when, when, when you're out there and rolling. Yeah. Thank you. I I appreciate all that feedback. You, as if you needed more to do also have a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> and this is something really cool that I learned about recently. You have a project called Equity Quotient because again, we need more things to do with our time. <laughs> what is this? Yeah, Equity Quotient was my data-loving heart um, really wanting to fill a, a perennial gap that I saw out there. And um, and I'll describe the gap a little. Um, there... There were two observations that led me to noticing this gap. One was that I had taken a lot of workplace trainings that had to do with implicit bias or sexual harassment, something that was supposed to improve the culture of that organization. And I've spent a lot of time in these trainings. And um, and I always wondered, what did that do? You know, did that improve something? Because it felt good in the day. It was interesting. I was engaged. And then I walked out and I was like, I don't have an action plan. I don't have any sort of data that's pre-post that tells me what exactly that very intensive all-day training did. Um, surely, organizations that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on these trainings want to know what their return of investment was. Because otherwise, that investment was just a checkbox to say that you did it, right? I mean, we would we, we like results in healthcare. And I felt that too often, these big investments in changing culture do not have any sort of post data. So that was one thing. And then the second thing I noticed as I started going around the country and visiting departments and being asked to come in specifically because of my background knowledge in, in gender uh, equity, um, a lot of departments were led by well-meaning people who were unaware of a problem until it was flagrantly bad, you know. And so, um, so women would do a, f- a for or, or you know, or minorities would do a formal complaint, and that's when they understood the depth and breadth of the problem of discrimination or harassment in their de- departments. And I thought. 
first of all, I thought, how did you not know? Um, but, but I often think there aren't a lot of ways of formal knowing. There aren't ways for people to come up and discuss them without feeling like they're putting their own career at jeopardy. And so we have this thing where it's really uncomfortable to divulge these things. And yet good leaders want the best for their department and, and in truth wish they had known earlier. Um, so how are we to do that? And so a friend, um, Jane Vendis, who um, is an ob had had very similar observations. And we thought, let's fill that gap. It's a small gap in the overall picture of the problem, but it's completely missing and it's so needed. So that's what the origin of equity quotient is. We are um, basically a a metrics company. We uh, do culture assessments specifically focused around the experiences that tend to be disparate for women and for racial and ethnic minorities. Um, We do quantitative and qualitative assessments and provide a dashboard for employers that they can follow over time. So when they do something like introduce a mentorship program or a retreat or, um, you know, or a different way of, of allocating leadership and other types of rewards, they can see if those interventions in their culture are actually working rather than just being a shot in the dark that you hope does something, you know, and you kind of cross your fingers and wait for the next, the next survey of your fact to see how you do. That's really intelligent because that's how we do all of our work in healthcare, right? We are metric driven. We, we, we do need to collect and assess data, but we also need to teach and educate. And most importantly, like you're doing with this project, provide that safe place to make sure we're getting, uh, and I don't want to use this term to like minimize the impact, but we're, that we're getting good information that people are able to safely and fairly express themselves. Exactly. And, you know, just like you say, I mean, you, you hit on something that I talk about a lot, which is in healthcare, we measure everything to death except when it comes to problems of harassment and discrimination. We have no goals. We have no articulated goals. We don't have any standardized measurements. We don't measure much of anything except for very, very downstream things. And so we're trying to even that out and give people tools to do things proactively, even preventively, you know, to make sure that their workplace is really just wired to focus on what they're supposed to be focusing on, which is, you know, the actual work of providing great health care. I mean, that's why all of this is not meant to be a punitive or a depressing conversation. It's meant to be an opportunity for people to you know, clear the table of all this stuff that gets in the way of people doing what they plan to do in this profession, which is just give outstanding, uh, you know, outstanding clinical care to our patients. You've identified, I think, why you are, again, circling back to the top, one of those people kind of at that apex in terms of influencing change. But I would also submit that it makes you somebody who is in demand right? You have many, many, many thousands of followers on social media. You give talks all the time to big audiences. You and I have been working for several months to find a time for you to come on a pot on this podcast. We don't get training in healthcare, in residency or beyond what it's like to be in demand. We don't have a culture of celebrity. <laughs> the, the physicians that are most physicians kind of give them the side eye because that we, we feel like they're not necessarily representing our, our profession the right way. But right. you and a handful of others are moving moving into that light. What does it feel like to be in demand? Well, 
still a little bit surprising for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other thing is there is kind of this glow that comes from having a popular social media account that is not a hundred percent aligned with the, the value of my content. And, and, and I mean this very earnestly. Um, and I know this a hundred percent from my work with Time's Up because we're a big group. Um, so Time's Up Healthcare is now, I think, 75 plus um, women who are part of our founding members, populate our working groups, are running initiatives, are part of the steering committee, are part of the senior advisory group. It is a large and dynamic group. And the women in that group are truly brilliant. I mean, we recruited every single one in for a specific reason. Um, we're recruiting more women in uh, week by week um, because they provide perspectives that we don't already have, add to our intersectionality, things like that. Um, it's an incredible group and I am totally humbled by it. And I will tell you, um, I learn from all those women and many of them uh, give me feedback all the time um, about things that I, I simply am underdeveloped on in this area. So I, I, I would guess I would say I, I walk in this work with a lot of humility that is reinforced every day. I never feel like I am the expert and, um, and, and I, I know that I never will. And, and I guess I feel like part of my job is, is sure in this moment to say a lot of yeses and be on stage when I'm asked to. And then the minute that I can hand the baton onto others who are going to carry on this work. Um, and I'm right at that midpoint in my career where I, I'm still looking ahead to opportunities in my career and learning from, you know, chances to be in more of this public space, which is, which is still fairly new for me. Um, but I also uh, have a training role in that. Um, I, I think a big part of this is, uh, you know, you, you feel like you're, you're blessed to be a blessing for others. I have a lot of blessings and I, I, I see that my, meaning in life is to pass some of those on to these emerging leaders who are going to rise into a public role with a much more comfort and sophistication because they grew up in it um, and they are going to smash it. So, uh, so I agree in this moment, I have some of the public space. I still, you know, I need, I probably should have beta blockers before I go on stage because this is not <laughs> comfortable for me at all. Um, I, I will tell you, Mark, I swear to you, I was meant to be in an office writing. I mean, that's just who I've been since I was seven years old. I knew that I would be writing. And and I think there is a time where um, uh, where my public presence will be mostly through through writing and scholarship and some of the onstage things will fade away. So for the moment, I do it. I enjoy it. It's really exciting to have a little bit more of a reach than I did a few years ago, but, but I'm not, uh, I definitely am not like, you know, next up, I'm a rock star. You know, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think, um, you know, how do I capitalize on this to provide opportunity to the many, many women across healthcare, um, who will, uh, you know, who will, I think, continue this interesting transition that, that, um, healthcare providers are making right now. I mean, healthcare is, is such a prominent issue in the lives of all Americans that there still is, um, people really look for healthcare providers to step up, be in the limelight, provide accurate information, make some of these really complicated things easy to understand and dynamic and, um, and shine some light on how fascinating these issues are that we grapple with in healthcare. Um, I think that's really, there's going to be, you know, there's a few of us now, I think there's going to be so many one, uh, one cycle later. 
So I'm glad that you said, first of all, that was a lot to unpack. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> too much. Was that too much? No, no, gosh, no, absolutely dark, not. And then, you know, I finished like a half an hour later. I'm I not love sure exactly it. I what the it. question was. <laughs> hey, that's, that's why podcasting is so much fun, right? Some of the time, like no one can get a word in edgewise because we're just going at it. And sometimes people get to have a little, take a solo. And I'm glad you did, right? You said you, you want to be a rock star. Well, you, you know, rock stars take their solo. And that was, but again, right, <laughs> we get to have super smart people come on the show and, and do their thing. And so that's a really great opportunity for, for me and for people listening to learn. I will submit, I'm glad to hear that you say that you're still feeling like you're a writer at heart because I will say some of your favorite things that you put out on Twitter are the titles of your books. <laughs> They're <laughs> yeah. just killer. Yeah, I'm not going to step titles. on them. People need to go and, and look through your feed because some of them are legit awesome. Um, <laughs> and, and I think I may have sent one of them to you that was like, this could put maybe be like the title of your autobiography. I don't remember what it was. But <laughs> yes, I remember that. Premium stuff. Like the, you, you come up with excellent book titles. So you're going to have to write like a series. But one of the things that you said as you were describing your vision of this journey that that made me smile. A few months ago, this idea was 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 passed to me from a guest of as we rise, we lift. And yeah. sometimes as we lift, we want to lift someone higher than where we are. So to hear that that's your view of this work, that this isn't I get to now line my pockets and travel around the world and, you know, shake hands and kiss babies that this is, this is an opportunity to really grow something special and to bring up the people behind me to even higher levels. Like that's the right work and that's appreciated. Thank you. There's a lot of you for people to learn from, listen to watch, engage with. And I would imagine that as people, more and more people continue to be interested to you are going to want that. How do we find you on social media? How do we find you on the internet? Well, for my day-to-day -day thoughts, I'd say Twitter account, and that's at Chu, C-H-O-O underscore E-K. And then I love it when people check out the websites for the two organizations that we talked about. So yep. Time's Up Healthcare is timesuphealthcare.org. And, um, and we're also a link from timesupnow.com. And, uh, and then my, my equity quotient business is eqmedicine.com. And we'll have links to all of those in our show notes as well. I would really encourage people to check those out. One other thing that I have found to be useful has just been to go into YouTube and to put your name there um, because a lot of your talks are there as well. Oh, um, thank you. Not only is the content really good, but a lot of what you and I were discussing, right, in terms of how you deliver a talk successfully, people can actually watch that. They can see, oh, I'm observing. I'm not seeing a lot of slides. I'm observing that she's moved out from behind the podium. I'm observing that there's – this is funny – a lot of those skills and techniques that we talked about, that's, that's a nice way for people to not only learn from your content, but learn from your style as well. I appreciate that. Thanks for the compliment. Absolutely. This has been great. I'm, I'm glad that we took our time getting a date. I'm glad that you're hard to get on the schedule because Aww. it just made it that much more fun. <laughs> Thanks for your persistence. No, absolutely. This was really special. I really appreciate you taking the time. The arc of your career is just exceptional and fun to watch. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Thanks so much, Mark, and keep up the great work here. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.